<clears throat> okay, Verizon says it is 9.30. So let's, um, uh, got a couple things I want to do today. We're going to spend some time in the book of Acts. Then I want you to get to know a friend of us in our congregation. So let's go to Athens. If you'll open your Bible to Acts chapter 17. Perhaps you remember last week uh, we... Um, went with Paul to Thessalonica, then to Berea, and then um, uh, really to help him sort of escape into safety, his, his uh, compatriots, his entourage, put him on a boat uh, near Berea, and he makes the journey down to Athens. And we're going to spend this week and next week in Athens. It, it is um, a very, very unique uh, passage in the book of Acts. Paul acts, Paul reacts differently in Athens uh, than he does anywhere else. And um, if you know anything about the history of Greece and the history of Athens, you probably uh, can understand why Paul acted and reacted so differently in Athens. I'm curious, how many of you have ever visited Athens? I figure quite a few of you would have. Um, Athens today is a major, major city. But in the ancient world, uh, you have democracy because of Athens. You have probably the bulk of Western thought because of Athens. Um, in Paul's day, Athens was not the commercial center of Greece. That's Corinth, where we're getting ready to go to. Uh, but Athens was still the cultural intellectual center uh, of Greece, and it was viewed that way by the Roman Empire. Uh, the, the Greek culture had spread all over the world before the Romans took power, which is why your New Testament, written by Jews, is written in what language? Greek. So the Greek culture, the Greek language, uh, just spread all over the ancient world, and Rome, the Romans just inherited that. And the Romans needed some culture, so they appropriated the culture uh, from, um, from, from Greek culture. So Athens was the center of intellectual life, the center of culture. Um, the, what, what you need to want, well, there's a lot of things you need to understand about when Paul went to Athens. When Paul went to Athens, I'm sure if you went to Athens, you saw the Parthenon. Well, even when Paul went to Athens, the Parthenon was old. It was 400 years old by the time Paul went there. Uh, the glory days of Athens had passed, because again, we're under the Roman Empire right now. Um, the city was not that large uh, by standards like Alexandria and some other places in the ancient world. Uh, we are told by a lot of historians the city probably had 10,000 people. But what we Christians love to note, because you see it in the text here, there were 10,000 people probably residing in uh, the city of Athens, but there probably, we're told, maybe as many as 30,000 statues of idols. And that's why, you know, there was almost a saying in the ancient world, there were more idols, more gods than people in Athens. And you're going to see that referenced in what Paul's reaction is to Athens. Um, so in a lot of ways, particularly from a Christian perspective, Athens is unique. And Paul would say it's a very dark place. Intellectual, cultural, artistic, 
but 30,000 statues to pagan gods. Uh, polytheism was full-blown and on display in Athens. And here comes Paul, the Jew, uh, preaching the Jewish Messiah, one God, and that one God has been made known in the Jewish Messiah, Jesus. And he's taking that message, trying to take that message, into the heart of polytheism. So the city is full of idols. But what makes that even more important for Paul is it is full of idolatry. Um, that's the city that he goes to. So a great, great deal of darkness, which you'll notice he, you notice at the end of last week's text in uh, Acts uh, 17, we finished last week at verse 21. Um, or not 21, at verse uh, 15, that he went to Athens by himself, but he called quickly. He called quickly for Silas and Timothy to come to him. Um, I, I am sure that Paul felt alone in Athens in, in more ways than one. Um, you know, he was not in Kansas anymore, Toto. I mean, while the old, whole ancient world was polytheistic, uh, pagan gods, um, Athens was that to an extreme. Athens was the city that transported much of that to the world, um, that, in, that created the Mediterranean world of Paul's day uh, to be what it was culturally uh, uh, and artistically. Again, that's why these Jews, these Romans, if they were educated, they were still writing in Greek because that was the high culture. That was high culture. So here's Paul going into this place. Look at verse 16, chapter 17. Well, let's go back to 15. Make sure you remember where we left off last week. Uh, those who conducted Paul brought him as far as Athens. Those are the people on the boat. And after receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible, they departed people who had brought him on the boat, but they're taking word back to Timothy and Silas to come to Athens quickly, catch up with Paul. So look at verse 16. Now, while Paul was waiting all alone for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked as he saw that the city was full of idols. Um, again, one of the reasons we're looking at the book of Acts the gospel going into the world in the book of Acts is very similar to the gospel going into our world. Um, think, like, think, think like Athens being a mix of like New York City and your greatest university town that you can imagine. That's, that's, that's what Athens was. They were intelligent. They were intellectual. Um, and Paul went in there and saw all the idolatry, because I'm sure you know an idol, idol is not just something that's made out of stone or wood. Uh, idolatry can be your thought system. Idolatry can be your philosophy. Idolatry can be the way you look at the world. Anything that takes the place of the true God in your life is idolatry. Uh, most of us avoid the little, you know, statues. Most of us avoid, uh, you know, that kind of explicit idolatry. But the worldview behind all of that is the basis of the idolatry. So uh, here's Paul in a city 
filled with idolatry in more ways than one, not just the little statues, but in their worldview, in the way they view life, in the way they view themselves. Athens was a very proud city, even though they weren't what they had been 400 years before in their heyday under Pericles, they still were a very proud city. They were transporting their culture around the known world. Feels a little bit like America right there, doesn't it? Um, they were a very proud culture. They thought they were an exceptional culture. And here comes Paul. Now, Paul knew the, the Greco-Roman world well because he'd been raised in Tarsus. By the way, Tarsus, where Paul was from, and it's going to have effect on this text, Tarsus, where Paul was from in the uh, eastern part of what we would call Turkey, also was a university town, which is why Paul particularly knew Stoicism well. And that's going to, have, bring, that's going to come to bear on this text. Paul was highly, highly, highly educated, and that's why in Acts 17, you're going to hear Paul quote some of their pagan gods back to them. Paul was educated. Paul uh, had been well prepared for his ministry. He uh, grew up in Tarsus, um, Roman citizen, but he was of Jewish heritage, so he went and studied in Jerusalem under Gamaliel. So if anyone in the early Christian community could give these Athenians a run for their money, it would have been Paul. So here's Paul in this city. His spirit is provoked within himself. If your spirit hasn't been provoked recently, you need to check your Christian life. If your spirit's not occasionally or oftentimes provoked by the paganism of the culture around you, yeah, you need to check your spiritual life. Um, if anything should provoke uh, those who try to follow the true God, is idolatry. Idolatry. So uh, here's a city full of religions. And as a matter of fact, um, it'd be next week's section where Paul starts his sermon. He actually says to the people, I perceive that you are all very religious. And they are very religious. Now, Paul probably meant that, Paul probably meant that sarcastically, which is why you're King James doesn't translate it, you are very religious. King James translates it, you are very superstitious. But either way, Paul is in a culture that's very religious. And one of the things you learn here from Paul's experience in Athens is religious people, hell is full of religious people. Just because you're religious doesn't mean you know the true God. It doesn't mean you know the expression of the true God in Jesus Christ. So here's Paul in a very religious culture. Uh, it's, 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 a, it's a culture that prides itself on its diversity. That's why you had a lot of, you will see it in the text, you have Epicureans, you have Stoics, and that list can continue. You had Cynics. You had a lot of different schools of philosophical thought that had been birthed there in Athens and transported around the world. So that's the culture to which Paul is getting off the boat. If you've ever been to um, Athens, you know the port for Athens is, Athens is the Piraeus. It was in Paul's day. You have to port in Piraeus, and you got a few miles uh, to go to get into the heart of Athens. So here he is. His spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he, 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 he observes his original... His, he observes his practice that he tries to do everywhere. Who does he go to first? 
Jewish people, if he can find them. Verse 17, so he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons. Again, those devout persons are all we've called over and over and over again, the God-fearers. Those were Gentiles like Luke, Gentiles who had attached themselves to the Jewish community. Um, uh, they were Gentiles who liked the, the Jewish God. They liked the, the ethics and the family orientation of the Jewish gods. Uh, a lot of the uh, Roman and Greek gods were not even good people. They wouldn't make good people, much less good gods. Uh, but that's why some of the Gentiles attach themselves to, the, to Judaism. And that's why when you'd go to synagogue, you'd find some of these Gentiles worshiping, studying in the synagogue. And again, Paul would always start there because he's halfway to Christianity. I mean, they, they, they have the scriptures, what we call the Old Testament. They're looking for the Messiah. So he just has to try to bring them up to date that the Messiah had come. So he, he, he observes his practice, goes to the synagogue. He finds Jews and devout persons. But notice he doesn't just stay in the synagogue. And in the marketplace, uh, if you go to Athens or any ancient city, it's called the Agora. Uh, when you're standing on the Parthenon and look down the hill, not just down the hill to uh, the, the Mars Hill, that little hill right outside the Parthenon, but if you look way down the hill, you see um, the flat land at the very bottom of the hill that the Parthenon is built on. That's where the ruins of the Agora uh, stand today. Most people that visit Athens never go there because by the time you do Parthenon, by the time you climb Parthenon and, and visit Parthenon, you're ready to go home uh, or back to your hotel. But if you're standing on top of the Parthenon, looking far down, that's the Agora. That's the marketplace. So Paul goes to the marketplace. He doesn't just wait for people to come to him to share Christ. He goes to the marketplace. And again, I'm sure he felt so out of place in that marketplace. He would have been much more at home in the synagogue, but he felt very out of place in the agora of the marketplace. He went there every day with those who happened to be there. So people, you know, they didn't get up that morning and say, I'm going to the marketplace if I can run into a Jew who's a Christian evangelist. But that's what happened. They would go to the marketplace and, and Paul would be doing the work of an evangelist there in the marketplace. And look at verse 18. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some says, said, what does this babbler, babbler wish to say? Any other words besides babbler in your English? Yeah, yeah. There's a lot of, the word babbler is spermologos. Um, it literally means a seed picker. So that was a, a not nice word that the Greeks used. Uh, they called Paul a seed picker. Now, what they meant by that, we think, um, you know, it's kind of like we English people, we talk about it raining cats and dogs. Can you imagine people 2,000 years from now trying to figure that one out? Um, well, what, what is a seed picker or a babbler? Um, probably it's one of two things. It could be people hanging out in the marketplace to pick up scraps of food or scraps of whatever people left on the ground. Uh, but probably a seed picker in this instance, because it's coming from Stoics, it's coming from, uh, from Epicureans, means someone who just picks up here and there pieces, kind of like a bird, 
So it's an image of a bird that's a seed picker that sort of picks up um, pieces of um, wisdom or pieces of knowledge here and there. But they're not very profound. They're not very deep. They're still pretty shallow. One of my favorite quotations, which we probably should use more in this culture, um, Alexander Pope, those of you that taught English, Alexander Pope, uh, the um, English um, poet from the early parts of the 18th century, he said, uh, um, he said, you know, a little learning is a dangerous thing. Drink deeply or drink not at the Perine Spring. Um, a little learning is a dangerous thing. I'm sure you've figured that one out. You know, there's people who have just a little bit, enough to make them arrogant, enough to give them a strong opinion, enough to make you think they know what they're talking about. And that's why um, in Western civilization, we've all agreed, a little learning is a dangerous thing. Drink deeply or drink not at the um, Perean Spring. Yeah, you know, don't just, you know, and really, this is a bigger issue now that we have social media. People read something on social media and they think they, they know everything about that topic. Um, or they hear, 30, they hear three minutes on the evening news and they think they hear all about that topic. We probably need to resurrect the word spermologos, seed picker. And we got people picking seeds and getting little pieces of information. So they're, they're trying to attack Paul intellectually here. You know, the Stoics who have a well-thought-out system. I'll tell you what it is in a minute. The Epicureans who have a well-thought-out system. Uh, the Cynics who aren't mentioned here who have a well-thought-out system. Uh, they think Paul um, is just um, a lightweight intellectually because they, they are not real familiar with what he's talking about. So let me say something about the Epicureans and the Stoics. And I need to do this because there's probably some Epicureans and Stoics in this room. And I'd love to make a Christian out of you. That's what Paul's doing here. Um, I do have a bust of Plato in my study, but I, I know where Plato ends and the Christian faith begins. So uh, in this culture, there's still Epicureans, there's still Stoics. And Paul's trying to argue with them, help them come to faith in Christ. Let me tell you about the Epicureans. Um, and you've probably heard of both of these words. Uh, there's a stereotype about both of these phrases today, someone who's an Epicurean, someone who's stoical or stoic. There's some truth uh, in the stereotype, um, but the stereotypes don't completely absorb the truth. Uh, an Epicurean, both the Epicureans and the Stoics were founded about 300 years prior to this in, in Athens' heyday. An Epicurean, well, in regards to God, they were deists. Uh, a lot of our founding fathers were deists. Deism teaches, yes, there may be a God, but we can't know that God. We can't have any interaction with that God. The image from American deist is God as a clockmaker. You know, he created, God as creator, he created the universe like a clockmaker. He, he wound it up and then he stepped back. And the clock kind of runs on its own. So the cynics, uh, a lot of people viewed them as atheists because from... Other people's point of view, you might as well be an atheist. If you say there's a God, but we can't know him, that God inter doesn't interfere with our life, a God does not intervene, just a God who created, set the laws, and stepped aside. Well, Epicureans believe that. Epicureans also believed, if you go read Epicurus, was their founder, go read his stuff. Epicureans also, they were, they were thoroughgoing materialists. This world is all there is. 
So grab all the gusto you can. You only go around once kind of ideas. And even in this culture, Epicureans are seen that way. Epicureans usually are viewed as people who have an extreme attraction, attraction, attack, attention or attraction to pleasure and happiness. And if you hear the word Epicurean in this culture, it probably means that. Uh, the ancient Epicureans, that was true of them. Uh, they were a little more profound on what happiness was than modern Americans are. Uh, they were a little more profound than what modern Americans are on what pleasure is. But an Epicurean is one who, who idolizes, puts there to the center of his life or her life, the pursuit of comfort and pleasure and happiness. Many Epicureans lately, their whole life revolves around, you know, when can I take my next vacation? Their whole life revolves around, what's my recreation this week? Their whole life revolves around, you know, comfort. I mean, you know, I mean, think about some of the stuff that we have that people will buy to help us become more comfortable today. Um, Epicureans idolize comfort and pleasure. This life, you only go around once. Uh, that's why sometimes stereotypically in this culture, people think about Epicureans or those who know how to party, those who know how to eat well. And there's some truth in that. Those were the Epicureans. They, they wanted above all else to avoid pain, you know, Always find a pill or something. Don't, don't, you know, always avoid pain. Pain is always bad. Avoid pain. And what they wanted more than anything else in the midst of this world as thoroughgoing materialists seeking pleasure, seeking comfort, is they did want tranquility. They did want tranquility. So they idolized peace. I see some Christians idolize peace. That's why Martin Luther one time said to a congregation, um, May God deny you peace to give you glory. I see stuff on Facebook. It's amazing what you learn on Facebook. You know, if, if there's somebody in your life that's taken away your peace, just walk away from them. Analyze that from a Christian perspective. There's a lot of people that I serve, yeah, they take away my peace on a regular basis. But I can't say, you know, I can't idolize peace to the point that I walk away from them. Don't let anybody, you know, harsh your buzz. That's a new phrase. Don't let anybody take away your peace. Well, the Epicureans, they, they idolized peace. Um, Stoics are very different. Now, I'll give you a disclaimer. Me and Paul in the New Testament have a lot in agreement with the Stoics. Paul was raised in Tarsus, which was a university town that had a strong Stoic presence. And by the way, if you go on Amazon and Google Stoicism, you'll see that there's been a tremendous awakening upsurge of Stoical fault. Some great authors out there today making money. They've even recaptured, they've even recaptured the use of the word Stoic. Uh, you can now get um, really... In multiple ways, you can get Marcus Aurelius's meditations. Marcus Aurelius was a Roman emperor. He was a stoic. How many of you have seen the movie Gladiator? That good emperor that gets killed by his son, the bad emperor, that's Marcus Aurelius. That's why he has the beard as a philosopher. He was a philosopher king. 
And he's really good in that movie too, by the way. You like him. You know, he doesn't want to be out fighting, but he feels it's his duty to go do it. Uh, Marcus Aurelius says, meditate. All of our forefathers, uh, I'm sure some of our foremothers, also read some of Marcus Aurelius. And if you go read Marcus Aurelius, it's just a lot of sayings. And you will you will probably appreciate, you may not follow, but you'll appreciate his sayings. The Stoics believed that um, the greatest thing is not to seek pleasure or comfort, but to be in harmony with the universe. Now, the Stoics, in regards to God, saw God as the supreme being, the great power. Um, They would say stuff like the world force. You know, they, they believed that there was a divine aura over the world, and they said that um, uh, the greatest good is not pleasure or happiness, but the greatest good is to be in is is to be to follow reason, follow reason, and and be um, in union with the force that has created and runs the world. So a Stoic, and this is where me and Paul like the Stoics, they believed um, they said be afraid of your emotions. Um, you know, that, that, that Epicureans loved their emotions. Their emotions guided them on all things. They were materialists. They loved their emotions. Pleasure, comfort. Stoics said, follow reason. Follow your mind. Follow your duty. Do what's right. You know, you might have to lose some peace to serve some of these people in your life. Um, when you look at Paul's writings, two places where he looks very much like a Stoic, every time he starts listing vices, you know how Paul loves to do that, he'll give you like a list of 20 things that you should not do. That's a Stoic practice. Stoics did that. You know, sometimes our lists disagree a little bit, but not much. Um, when you read Paul's household codes, where he talks about husband and wife and children and slaves and all these people should should exist in a certain type of orderliness. That's being sort of like a Stoic. So there's a lot, you, you, you probably see why Stoicism is having a resurgence in this culture. Because one of the main idols in this culture is the idolatry of emotions. People do what they emotionally want to do. They don't do what they emotionally don't want to do. Well, a Stoic would say, get a life. You can't, you got to do your duty. You got to do what's right. You got to do for what you were, what you were created to do. Um, you can't, you can't just seek pleasure like the Epicureans and the comfort, um, like the Epicureans did. So, you know, for, for that, for the Stoics, stuff like self-control, morality, doing the right thing, um, being calm, now, again, most people, if you're called stoical, they probably mean that is, you know, you, you're not, you're not, your emotions aren't bursting out all over you all the time. Now, you know, my wife understands that my heritage as a Scott Irish mountain person, yeah, we are stoical. You, you may not know we're upset with you until we shoot you and bury you in the backyard. <laughs> that, that's how stoic is usually used in this culture. And, um, Stoics were more profound than that. But they did not want to be ruled by their emotions. They did not want to be propelled by their emotions. So um, one thing, we'll move on from Epicureans and Stoics, these, all these philosophies around Paul, what you're going to see in his sermon. Just, you know, you can't say, there's a Stoic, I'm a Christian, they're all bad, I'm all good. Stoics may say some good stuff. 
And I think Stoics do say a lot of good stuff. That's why Paul appropriated a lot of Stoicism. Now, to be honest, I have a hard time finding good stuff in the Epicureans. But Stoics, there's a, there, there, you see Stoicism in the New Testament uh, because I think it goes back to the Judaism, Ten Commandments, 613 laws. Do what is right, not what you feel like. Do what is right. And, you know, God in the Old Testament gave you 613 laws in case you need a little instruction on what is right. So um, Stoicism, there is a stream of Stoicism. Um, but you can see, go Google. There, there's some authors, young authors, making a lot of money right now, uh, bringing Stoicism to the modern world. And because there are people out there who, who want to learn, at least they say they do, how to not be controlled by their emotions, how to not let emotions determine their decisions, how to use duty and morality and what's right uh, to find the highest good in life. Um, so go, go, you, go study the Stoics. Uh, you can get Now you can get a daily devotional with writings from the Stoics. Now, I mentioned Marcus Aurelius. Again, we can look at these philosophies. We should have enough intelligence to say where they're good and where they're bad. I love Marcus Aurelius. Our founding fathers, like George Washington, loved Marcus Aurelius. Yeah, I've got a problem when he started killing Christians. Bad idea, Marcus. Because um, he thought that was his duty as Roman Empire emperor. So yeah, so as, as Christians, and by the way, one of the people who will teach us this best, this doesn't surprise you, C.S. Lewis. You know, there's stuff in ancient mythology, there's stuff in ancient philosophy that agrees with Christianity. And when C.S. Lewis sees that stuff, like all this stuff in the Stoicism, it wouldn't make a Stoic happy. You know, I don't know if Paul said it to him, but Paul could have said to the Stoics, you know, half of what you teach is right because it's what we teach. That probably wouldn't make the Stoics happy. But, you know, truth is truth. Wherever you find truth is truth. You can have your truth and me have my truth. You can have your Stoical truth and you have your Epicurean truth and me have my Christian truth. Truth is truth wherever we find it. We believe that the supreme truth has been revealed in Jesus Christ. But, um, you know, when you look at the New Testament, it's obvious that Paul found some truth in this, among the Stoics when he said, you know, you may want to stay in bed till noon, but go ahead and get up and pray at 6 a.m. You know, I mean, that's, that's kind of his Stoical side. So there, we can, we can, don't just discount anything that's not, we're not Amish, or I'm not Amish, you may be Amish. We don't discount everything in culture around us, but we've got to have the mind of Christ so that we can choose, see where the lines are drawn, appropriate what, 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 what agrees with the mind of Christ, and throw out what doesn't. So I would appropriate a lot of Stoicism. I throw out the Epicureanism. I'm hard-pressed to find, you know, about the only place in the Bible where you see anybody that seems to be Epicurean is like the book of Ecclesiastes. You know, that book of Ecclesiastes almost, almost sounds like it's saying, grab all the gusto you can. You only go around once. I did it my way, all that. That's Epicureanism. So, uh, so I want you to go out from this place today and, and, and start looking for the Epicureans in your life. Start looking for the Stoics in your life. Um, be harsher on the Epicureans. It is really hard to squeeze Epicureanism into Christianity. Uh, I mean, if, if pleasure and comfort and joy and entertainment 
and leisure. If all that's your God, yeah, it's hard to squeeze that. But if you're stoical and stuff like duty and morality, that can help you find the true God. Uh, so anyway, it says here in the text, and in the first century when Luke wrote this, he assumed you knew what these people were. It says here in the text, some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with them. Some said, what does this bird, uh, this um, seed picker, um, wish to say? Others say he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities. Watch this. They think he's preaching about two new gods. He seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. You know what the Greek word for resurrection is? Anastasis or Anastasia. So they thought he was talking about two new gods, Jesus and Anastasia. So he's confusing these deep intellectuals here. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus. That's the little hill that some of us, some of you have climbed up on. It's not a big hill. It's a big rock, actually. That was called the Areopagus. The Ares is the Greek god of war. Who's the Roman god of war? Mars. You ever heard the, you ever heard the title Mars Hill? There's a Christian... Uh, college in North Carolina's Mars Hill. So the Areopagus is the Greek way of saying Mars Hill. So it's the Hill of Ares or the Hill of Mars. Uh, the Areopagus, though, by the time Paul is here, is the group that met on top of that hill, the city council. They took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, may, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting, for you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Verse 21 now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. Fads. You know, the, the latest, you know, the latest um, guru who's going to transform your life. So again, if you, if you don't see the parallels between ancient Athens and our culture, ask your neighbor to help you figure it out. I mean, they're obvious. They're obvious. Our culture is um, enamored with what is new and faddish to the point that if it's old, it is bad. You know, C.S. Lewis called that chronological snobbery. You know, that's why, you know, when you tell me something's new and improved, that makes Americans salivate. I'm not sure it makes me salivate. I might like the old and tried instead of the new and improved. We Americans love the new and improved. I mean, we will do ridiculous things to, for, because of our passion for the new and improved. That same thing the Athenians were doing. They were hanging around all the time talking about what is new. Anyway, so next week, if you noticed how the text goes, next week you get into the sermon. Paul's going to preach in the midst of this place. So you're already sensing it's going to be a very different sermon than what Paul preached in Thessalonica or Berea or Philippi or Corinth even. This is going to be a very different. He's preaching to philosophers, intellectuals, and uh, you're going to see a very different sermon there. So now I want to do something really fun.